0: But it is a privilege to, uh, to, to be asked to come up to share on Sunday mornings with you, and I am thankful for that opportunity. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our studies on the Beatitudes, and so I invite you as, uh, to open in Matthew chapter five and verse one, and on the Pew Bibles, that would be page 802. If you do not have a Bible of your own, the Bible that you have on your, pew, uh, on your uh, chair is a gift from the church. To take home yours. Matthew chapter five and verse one. One day he saw the crowds gathering. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Uh, Let's pray for a moment as we open. Father, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to what it is that you may be speaking to us this morning through these passages. We pray that this time together would cause us to grow in our walk with Christ and that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is actually the last in our Sunday series, which was titled uh, Read the Red, where we looked at what serves as the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in particular what's come to be called the Beatitudes. And what we've seen over these weeks, and an important takeaway from this section of Scripture, is that these Beatitudes are not a standard that we have to live up to in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but rather these are the character qualities of someone who actually already is a member of the kingdom of heaven. And what we saw over these weeks is a very intentional progression in how Jesus is teaching. And how one beatitude builds upon the next. But also what we see here is a parallel to what John the Baptist said when his disciples came to him and said that that their followers were leaving him to go after Jesus. And John said to them that he must increase, but that I must decrease. And in the same way, when we look at the progression of Beatitudes, there's this continuing process of us putting aside our human self-nature and taking on God's nature and his character. And so as we look at the, quickly as the Beatitudes, as we've gone through them over these past weeks, we look at this progression, we, it starts where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the starting point where we, we recognize this awareness that we're spiritually bankrupt and that we have nothing to offer God, and yet he loves us. And this causes us in a, a sense of mourning that we fall short because of our sinfulness, our rebelliousness. And the mourning then leads to a, a meekness and a humble spirit and a submissiveness before God. Where we finally get to the place where we recognize that we have no righteousness on our own, causes us to hunger and thirst for His righteousness, to have a right relationship with God. We start to long to walk closely with Him. And as we walk with Him, we grow in our desire to be like Him. We begin to see His godly character begin to develop within us. The mercy that we received from God causes us to grant mercy to others, and even in some cases to ourselves. And this mercy cleanses our hearts and restores purity. We begin to know him and to have a oneness of heart with him. And the purity gives way to true joyful peace where we're willing to deny ourselves and accept the cost that may be required for us to obtain true peace in our relationships with others. And ultimately this leads us to the climax of this progression of Beatitudes, the ultimate denial of self and the taking on of the Christ life character, where we can actually be happy and rejoice when we undergo persecution. This is the maturing process that all who are members of the kingdom of heaven experience, a progression where he must increase and we must decrease. And it doesn't happen all at once and it's not a kind of a thing where we can say that we've arrived. It's a lifelong process this progression of us being shaped into the image of Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna just scratch the surface on this, the last of these beatitudes. When Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you read the New Testament and especially the words of Jesus, some of them challenge us and they're hard to hear. And this beatitude certainly falls into that category. How do we even begin to understand what he's saying here that we should be able to rejoice in persecution? In the first week of this series, Pastor Greg said that we have both the privilege and the responsibility of living in what he called the overlapping age. Between the establishment of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus came to the world as our savior and the consummation of the kingdom of heaven, which is when he'll return as the king and the, and the judge at the end of the world. And I really like the image that he gave to us. He says, it's as if during his earthly ministry, Jesus reached out into eternity and pulled the kingdom of heaven into the present, and he staked it into the ground with the cross. When we go back to the creation account, you'll remember that Adam and Eve had a personal relationship with God, but then the devil deceived them, and and they disobeyed him, and they were cast out of the garden, and they became alienated from that relationship that they once had with him. Paul writing to the Romans says that we were actually enemies of God. And that's the world that we experience and that we live in today, a world that's alienated from God. In fact, John's Gospel, on several occasions, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually calls Satan the God of this world. It's here in this kingdom that's alienated from God, where Jesus staked the kingdom of heaven. And what is meant by the kingdom of heaven? Several times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, and he starts each of them with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. For example, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field, which was a parable about final judgment. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and that spoke of mercy. But this morning, I want to look at the example that he gave in Matthew chapter 13 on the kingdom of heaven. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then rehid, and for the joy over it, he went and sold all that he had that he might buy the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant of fine pearls, who when he had found that one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had that he might obtain it. In both of these instances, the individuals that Jesus mentioned found something that was so valuable and of such worth that they were willing to give up everything in their life to have it. What they found, couldn't even begin to compare with all of their earthly possessions combined. So what was Jesus saying here? That when someone gets a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven, when they see that God is inviting them into a personal relationship, inviting them to be one of his children, to be a member of his kingdom, when they see this, not just in words, but when they actually feel it in their souls, they will go after this with all of their being. And for many of us here this morning, this is something that we can actually relate to. Jesus is offering to everyone that pearl of great price. God is inviting us to be members of his kingdom, to confess that Jesus is our Lord and Master and to be his children. And as, as his children, all of his promises then are for us, that he'll be with us, that he'll watch over us and provide for us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he'll comfort us, and that will share eternal life with him. Listen to just a portion of David's Psalm 23. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, he restores my soul. I fear no evil. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of these promises belong to those who are God's children who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Not just in the future, only the last few words of the psalm refer to after David's death. These, these apply in his lifetime and in our lifetime. And for those who are members of God's kingdom, they apply today. Since that time when Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to this world, we who belong to him, who are filled with the spirit, we advance the kingdom of heaven into every place that we go. We may live in this world, and we may, but we're not members of this world. We're citizens of another kingdom. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, our homeland is in heaven. It's only from this vantage point that we can even begin to start to understand today's text, which says that we can have joy and happiness when we suffer for Christ. In the first seven of these beatitudes, Jesus spoke about the character qualities of those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. Now in this final beatitude, he says that because we are members of of the kingdom of heaven, the world is going to react harshly towards us. And Jesus made it quite clear of what could be expected of those who were to follow him. In John 15, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then writing to Timothy, Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Church tradition tells us that all of the apostles, except for John, were martyred for preaching Christ. And according to an article that I've found in Christianity Today, since Jesus walked the earth, there has been over 70 million Christian martyrs. Open Doors USA, which is a Christian ministry that works with persecuted Christians around the world, reports that over 245 million Christians live in places today that experience high levels of persecution. And according to their research, in the last year alone, 4,305 Christians were killed for their faith. Over 1,800 churches and Christian buildings were attacked and over 3,100 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And while the majority of these occur in Asia and Africa and in the Middle East, Christian persecution is also happening even in our own land. And though it may not be at the level of beheadings or churches being burned down, as seen in other places, it's a problem that's growing here at home. Every day we see Christians facing increasing intolerance in our country, in fines or lawsuits, job losses, and an, increase, and an increasing public attitude of ridicule and dislike for Christians. And in this beatitude, we do see that alongside persecution, Jesus also includes being insulted and having others speak poorly of us. Now, it, seem, it seems odd to us, right, that Jesus, who even today is regarded by the secular world as being one of the foremost moral teachers of all time. He did good wherever he traveled. He instructed his followers to feed the poor, to take care of the orphans. And he himself modeled respect for civil law and even paid taxes. And yet, he was despised and hated. And not only him, but he warned his followers that they too would be hated and persecuted. And wouldn't it seem that such a good person would be loved and admired by everyone? The answer to that lies in what we looked at earlier, this battle between the two kingdoms, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Dallas Willard was a professor at USC and is considered one of the most prominent Christian thinkers in the last 50 years. Wrote a book entitled The Divine Conspiracy and he wrote a bit on this subject. He says, every last one of us as a kingdom, or a queendom, or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. Here is a truth that reaches into the deepest part of what it means to be a person. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. This is contrasted with God's kingdom, or rule, which is the range of his effective will, and what, what, what he wants is done. So Willard is proposing for us then that our world consists of individuals who all fight to sit on the throne of their own lives to be able to do whatever they desire, to be the ruler of their own lives. And this stands in total contrast to the kingdom of heaven where God is the ultimate ruler and his will is done. Willard goes on to say, those who are members of the kingdom of heaven have effectively replaced their own individual kingdoms, with Jesus as their Lord. There is now the desire for his will and what he wants done. True followers of Christ have stepped off the throne of their own lives and have invited Jesus to sit on on their throne. He goes on. This then becomes the rub that creates conflict with those outside the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is united under one Lord, and its members are submissive to his will. The battle is against the God of this world, who tells mankind that they can be the gods and rulers of their own lives. So then, to live the Christian lives means that we've placed God on the throne of our lives. We call Jesus Lord because he is the Lord of our lives. And for this very reason, our life stands in contrast to those of the world. Placing God on the throne of our lives and submitting ourselves to his will stands as a challenge to others that their way is wrong and that they're on the wrong track. The reaction is likely to be ridicule, insults, slander, maybe even a harassment that leads to physical aggression. And it could result in rejection from family, friends, losing a job, or being ridiculed, either to your face or behind your back. And some who are here today, maybe most, could attest to having experienced at least some of this. And we also can't lose sight of the fact there's a spiritual component to all of this. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. But the persecution that he's speaking of is not a self-inflicted persecution of our own cause. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose name has come up several times over these weeks, wrote a book titled Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, which covers not only the Beatitudes, but the entirety of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's considered a classic, written by one of the greatest expository preachers of our time. He addresses this idea of Christians bringing persecution upon themselves. And he writes, it does not say blessed are those that are persecuted because they are objectionable or are difficult. We can bring persecution on ourselves because of our foolish notion of witnessing and testifying or because of self-righteousness. We are slow to realize the difference between being offensive because of our particular makeup and temperament and causing offense because we're righteous. So what about finding happiness and joy in persecution? Like Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not a future promise that says one day we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a present tense statement that those who are persecuted for Christ are already members of the kingdom of heaven and that there awaits great rewards for the Christian when he finally arrives home. What we're looking at earlier is the key to all of this. We exchange the world that we have for that hidden treasure, for that pearl of great price, to be members of God's kingdom here and now and then into eternity. Now, look at how all of this thinking aligns with New Testament writing. In Philippians, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He also said, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And then to the Corinthians, he said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Why then should we find happiness in persecution? because it confirms that we're followers of Christ and that we're members of the kingdom of heaven. We have the promised Holy Spirit living within us so that wherever we go, we bring and represent the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. And as such, we're not cheerleading from the sidelines, but rather we're active members advancing the kingdom of God here on this earth. Now the. There is a lot to think about in all of this, and as I said, we've just scratched the surface, but I would like to just suggest a couple of thoughts by way of application as to how we as Christians should both respond to persecution and then rejoice in persecution. First, how do we as Christians respond to persecution? We don't let our natural instincts rule us and drive us to retaliate. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And as we decrease and as he increases in our lives, we cultivate the fruits of the Holy Spirit that include patience and gentleness and self-control. Secondly, we don't allow resentment to overtake us. Repressing feelings of anger and retaliation is not enough. We strive to mature and to be more like him who told us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who mistreat us. And then we must not be depressed when we experience persecution. The first defense against that is exactly what we did this morning, which is developing an awareness and a preparation for the fact that Jesus told us that these things would happen. We have to fight off any feelings of unhappiness and remember that as members of the heavenly kingdom that we should rejoice and be glad. And then, how do we as Christians rejoice in persecution? We remember that persecution for righteousness' sake is proof that we're members of the kingdom of God. Jesus said so in this very beatitude for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. When we are persecuted, we're in good company. Secondly, we're identified with Christ. In Philippians, Paul wrote, unto you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. And Jesus told us that the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And lastly, persecution is a proof of where we're going. Jesus' very words say that your reward is great in heaven. And he was the model for how we should live. The writer to the Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. It says that Jesus actually focused on the joy that awaited him when he returned to his father as a way for him to endure the sufferings of the cross. I mentioned uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier, and it's only fitting that we close this entire series on the Beatitudes with the summary that Jones provides for this Beatitude on persecution. He says, Let us look at it this way. According to this argument, my whole outlook on everything that happens to me should be governed by three things. My realization that I'm a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. My consciousness of where I'm going and my knowledge of what awaits me when I get there. There's many here this morning who've had that glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, God inviting them into it personal relationship to be one of his children. And perhaps you've gone to church all of your life, or maybe you're just starting to come back to church because you're being encouraged by a spouse or a friend. And you, maybe you can't even relate to this idea of this pearl of great price that there's something that you would give up all of that you have in order to have it. You haven't found that in a church. And I'm gonna say to you that you won't find it in a church. The church here is just a place of broken people. Members of God's kingdom, not of our own doing, but because we have a savior who's opened the way for us. You'll only find that pearl of great price when you've met the master, face to face. And Jesus is inviting you into a personal relationship with him. The only qualification is these Beatitudes, that you find yourself in a place of brokenness, spiritually bankrupt, and that you have a hunger and a desire to know him. I encourage you today, in your own quiet moments, to cry out to God, that you would know him and that you would ask him to reveal himself to you.